a previous subject that came up in verse 10 where we were we're actually given our first imperative so the imperative that Paul gave the mandate the instructions that he gave the church at Corinth in fatherly love was to mend their what? All right, mend their nets. So we use that as a metaphor because the metaphor, the imagery of the net mending has to do with a unity of purpose, a unity of purpose. You could look at the text and grammatically you could, um, <clears throat> you could describe it in different ways. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, if you, uh, 1.10, if you pull it up, we're getting ready to pray and drill down into the sort of expanded uh, argument and development of the apostle around why the mending of the nets is essential. And you'll want to follow me through your outline as well, obviously. <clears throat> but again, what he said was, now I beseech you, the word there is our <clears throat> uh, root to the concept of uh, paraclete, Parakletos, I beseech you, I urge you, I'm drawing near to you with my voice, and I want you to listen to me. I, I, this is an intimate call for paying attention. I beseech you, I urge you. Brethren, he uses the frame brethren, that means he's speaking to them collectively, which is a very important tactic around dealing with large groups. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's now exalting the name of Christ as an authority that's behind what he's about to say. He expects them to actually pay attention to the authority of Christ. I beseech you by the name of, a, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So I lifted up <clears throat> that verb and adverb perfectly joined together because that particular phrasing has to do with the maintaining a unity of purpose. Maintain your unity of purpose. And that has to do with the mending of the nets. The mending of the nets is to minimize the capacity for the loss of your labors by making sure there are not big gaping holes in your dragnet because that creates all kinds of problems, mostly of which is a loss of an opportunity for men and women to come to know the Lord Jesus in his saving grace when our efforts are dissipated by raggedy tools and raggedy labors. This will now be expanded out into the nets representing behavior patterns in the church that often are not good and they are counterproductive and so we'll do some application in that let me open in a word of prayer and we're going to kind of dig right in i'm hoping that i can get through our outline <clears throat> but you know the text demands often some real care and so we'll see how far we can get father thank you for your mercies and your kindness to us thank you for those who have come out thank you for those that are yet coming asking for traveling mercies asking your kindness on those watching we're asking your mercy on uh, the families represented here and, uh, and our children and so forth as we are seeking to obey, obey your will in these matters of uh, the kingdom of God. We're asking that you make application to our heart so that we can live out this gospel in a way that brings you glory. We're coming to you on the grounds of your son's shed blood. Again, it is what cleanses us and purges us and washes us and and prepares us to draw near to you as you draw near to us and we come to you on the grounds of your son's righteousness which is our standing immutable irrevocable unchangeable for all eternity us in christ christ in us you and us and we in you this too we are being to be reminded of today and we pray that we understand that vision we pray it in jesus name amen amen so having come 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 through verse 10 where the apostle <clears throat> Paul is speaking in the first set of imperatives as to how the church at Corinth should be functioning <clears throat> as a collective. We now come up on him having to simply deal explicitly with what's going on 
which is again, it's a, it's a father paradigm dealing with the children who have crossed lines and crossed boundaries and exceeded parameters. Look at verse 11, for it has been declared unto me about you and from you, my brethren, the way the construction is laid out there, what the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm hearing things that are fully attestable and I'm hearing them from people that are among you. Now, that, that, again, that, that, that statement is important because he's not hearing something about someone from someone else outside of the circle of the people he's hearing from. What he's saying to them is, I'm hearing from you, my brethren, from brethren who are among you, so that what Paul is hearing cannot be classically um, <clears throat> identified as gossip. That would be the way that we would address our first sub-point. Paul is not passing gossip. You guys see that? And the construction would argue that. I am hearing things that have <clears throat> affirmed themselves to be factually true by people among you. That would give us some insight, too, into the, uh, the constituency at Corinth that was committed to God's glory. And what that means is, unlike kind of where we are in our culture and world today, people can do things that are unprincipled, people can do things that are dubious, people can do things that may not fit within the framework of the culture of that community, but because people don't have the integrity of uh, accountability at the uh, mano y mano are one-on-one -on -one level, often people will simply be quiet when things need to be addressed. Apparently, what has occurred is that the nature of what's taking place as we have it under our first point, can you pull our PowerPoint up? Uh, the open report of schism. Apparently, what had taken place was enough dialogue and enough conversation took place on the ground by which people began to divide themselves into groups. And in dividing themselves into groups, they began to wedge rhetorically and attitudinally against each other. They began to divide themselves into groups and wedge rhetorically. What I mean by rhetorical, which is what we're going to deal with, was they began to speak about how they were different than the other groups for this reason or that. Um, historically, what we call that is a party spirit. You can mark that down because politics has always been operating, whether in the church or out of the church. Um, <clears throat> an open report is given of the schism. This is what the Apostle Paul has heard. And that, that's really what the word is in the Greek. A schism is a rend, a rend. This is why he had said in verse 10, mend, mend, because you have rends in your, uh, in your nets. And the nets is assuming we have a mission, a goal, a collective duty to maintain efficiency in our cause. But we've got these mends in our net, and they're called divisions. And these divisions that Paul has already asserted. So in the subpoint A, as we work into it, Paul's not passing gossip around. He's not engaging in being a peddler of information that is uh, potentially true, but is not consumer appropriate. So that's what we would say about gossip. Gossip can be true, but it's not consumer appropriate. Everything you hear from somebody about somebody else is not necessarily something you should transfer and pass on. It's not consumer appropriate. You never pass on something about someone else that you receive about them that can be understood as personal and confidential. You never do that. You never just become a seesaw where they put a, a weight of information on one side of the lever of your ears and it bounces it and you send it to somebody else. Oh, she's just a seesaw. He's just a seesaw. Put a weight on and boom. You know it's going to get down the line if you let her hear it or him hear it. And, I, and I'm sorry to use the feminine gender in that, but not only history, but Paul makes it very clear that women who are not grounded in the text, unfortunately, because of the nature of relationships, how it is with women, very intricate, very dynamic, very acute, 
um, it's very easy to slip into gossip. And that's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm not building that argument here. I'm just saying it can happen. And in fact, what we're seeing in our text is actually the virtue of a godly woman whose community is seeking to quell this bad behavior because notice what it says. He says in verse 11, for it's been de declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe. See it? Now, Chloe is a female, <clears throat> and Chloe is a, a prominent woman uh, uh, in the community. She has uh, servants, men servants and maid servants. We would call them slaves, but you still need to know the nature of slavery in the first century is not like it was today. Many people would rather be slaves in, in, the, uh, in the indentured sense in the first century than to be free, particularly if in your freedom you can't make a living. And, and if we were to, my, I shouldn't even be talking about it, but I'll just narrow it down. When you get a job, there is a kind of indentured relationship on that job. There are parameters of responsibility on your job that, that risk require you giving up your life in a certain way. Does that make sense? Right. So to that extent, we would all understand the economy of voluntary slavery. But here is what the apostle is saying. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are at, uh, of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. That there are contentions among you. Now, this term here, contentions, is on the other side of the term schism. Schism and contentions are not the same thing. A division can take place without it having the overt manifestation of contention. A division can take place without it having the overt manifestation of contention. But frequently where contentions take place, divisions will occur. Particularly when those contentions are sustained and they increase the level of emotional investment in it because someone wants to maintain their position. So that's what contention is all about. So I want you to keep a distinction just technically between uh, schism and, and contentions, which is what Paul's concern is about. We're going to look at just a few verses on that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 through 4. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2 through 4. Notice what it says. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for up to this point you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Paul is giving insight into the scope and depth of his teaching to the Corinthians and he gave them a reason for which he couldn't take them into a deeper analysis of the more uh, 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 mysteries of the gospel. He could only teach them the fundamentals because he said their character was impeding them from a deeper knowledge of Christ. That's a very interesting concept. I think we'll come back to that when we get to chapter three and deal with the classical argument there around what it means to be a carnal Christian, okay? We're not there yet. I'm just sharing with you the, the very verse. Look at verse three. Notice what it says in verse three. For you are yet what? And then he uses the, this, this, what is called an exegetical, for you are carnal, that's a reason, and here's how we know, that's what is called an explanation of the reason, or what we call in theology an exegetical. We expound on the proposition, you're carnal, here's how you're carnal, this is how you're carnal. There is among you envying, envying, that is longing inappropriately for something somebody else has. There is strife. That is contending in a way of almost violence, if not psychologically and rhetorically, physically, striving with someone. And if we were to tie the two together, we're striving to obtain something from someone, which means we are willing to invade their space and we are willing to disrespect their humanity. Did that make some sense? We're willing to invade their space and willing to disrespect their humanity. And divisions, there's our word again, and divisions. That's the word schisms, okay? Are you not carnal and walk as what? A, a good uh, adjective to put before men is mere men, carnal men, immature men. Because what this would describe is society such as ours, 
where men and women are easily moved by rhetoric to start tumults and arguments and debates, even at a public level. That makes sense, right? Men and women are so immature today that they're willing to engage in the group dynamic of arguments and debates and contentions as if there is something in that that merits them uh, behaving less than reasonable, rational, civil, uh, and, and thoughtful about how to solve problems. Some people would prefer to just simply go ghetto, as I would use the phrase. And you're seeing that with younger people. It's definitely easy to move younger people to get into that kind of mode because really emoting when you don't have solutions is a way out of accepting the fact that you're stupid. Did that come home? So I'm going to just repeat that so you can tell it to your kids, the ones that are in college, and they'll, they'll go, whoa. <laughs> Emoting often is an excuse or justification for the fact that you haven't been intelligent enough to logically reason through the problem in front of you and you're frustrated. That's what children do. That's what children do. So, verse 4, as we continue. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So right here, what Paul is saying is you guys are operating out of what is called a party spirit. Does that make some sense? Right. He's saying it's very clear to me that you are exercising a horizontal dilemma. You guys know the term. I've taught you that before. The ceiling has stopped. The elevator is going no higher. <laughs> You're on the third floor and you don't realize this thing is not going any higher, okay? So you're not making any headway. You're not getting any lift when you're operating out of that level of carnality. May I say that what Paul is describing here is politics as we know it? Now go back to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, because I want you to see it in uh, verse uh, 12. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, verse 12 will set us up for this. Before we move on, notice what he says. Now this I say, that every one of you say it. You see that? Now this I say, that every one of you are saying. Now, here's what I want you to get. <clears throat> I want you to get that Paul has been so fully informed that he actually knows the scope of the rhetoric that's going around. He's able to actually generalize it out to such a degree that he's saying, this I know that every one of you are saying. Now he's not literally saying, this is where English thought can be different than Greek thought and, and definitely Hebrew thought. He's not literally saying everybody in the church is saying this. But he is saying there's enough people in the church saying this that you have a reputation now of folks being divided among you and taking party positions. Did that make some sense? Right, that's all he's saying. He's saying, it's, this is not a small little uh, stirring. This is something that has now emerged to the degree that it's able to own you guys as an identity marker. The Corinthians are at war. They're striving. They're fighting. They got party spirits, divisions, you know, that are so, so severe that uh, everybody knows about it. So this is a house that is invaded by a less than Christian attitude. You agree with, you'd agree with that, right? And there would be ways in which we could actually surmise what, what that is. And, and one of them would be Paul's own knowledge of how the Jews infiltrated the Corinthian community. You could go back to Acts 16 through 18. That's the historical premise for this, how the Jews came in and stirred up the Gentiles to really go after Paul and Barnabas and others, even to the point of city tumults, okay? It was really bad. All you got to do is go back to the text, and please do, so we can enjoy this on Friday. I'm, I'm just laying out a, a kind of optic for you. It was pretty rough. I, I can tell you that now. Uh, when you get a bunch of thugs coming from another city into your own city to create mayhem in your city and uprising to stop the advancement of a message. This is what we're talking about, a kind of ancient uh, uh, BML, okay? Some of my people get that, right? Because we know that it's structured and it's political and it's strategic. This was not organic. 
There's some big guys that pay for a group of people that ain't got nothing else to do but tear up things to come over into your city and create mayhem and expose men and women who are not grounded in reality and get them involved. Right. Well, what Paul knew was that this was merely the Judaizers who had done the same thing with the apostles and with Jesus. Y'all got that? So we already know, like Paul said to the Corinthians himself in chapter five, um, later in in the text, he'll say, um, now we know Satan's devices because Corinth had been penetrated with this. So under our first point, so we can keep it moving, Paul is not passing on gossip, He's actually deliberating now as he ought to matters that are so severe that he has to write about it and speak about it. Verse uh, sub point B, Paul is preventing what? Chaos. That's right. He's intervening to stop the chaos. Don't know how much success he's going to have at it, but that's what he is doing. Um, Look with me at uh, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 8 and 9 briefly i'm going to be pulling this up again in the marriage series but notice what paul what the uh, what what solomon says in proverbs 9 8 reprove not a scorner there are people for whom you cannot correct you got to be able to identify them too there's some folks are just uncorrectable reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee rebuke a what rebuke a wise man and he will do what the next verse the next verse says, give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will what? <clears throat> so the apostle Paul obviously believed that there was major redeemable value to actually encourage and instruct the church at Corinth to take up a different position, right? That means he knew there were true believers there. He knew there were true believers on the right side of the issue. But he also knew that there were true believers on the wrong side of the issue. Is that possible? Can a believer be on the wrong side of the issue? Right, without a doubt. And they can be on it in such a sustained way that they can be major contributors to the disruption of the fellowship. Now, this is really true. So I was working through this. I said to myself, if you think about Corinth in terms of the pathology of Corinth, given the culture that they come from, and uh, we talked about that a little bit last week. I'm not going to get into it too much today. But when you think about them being part of the historically Greek culture, when you think about them being a um, seaport city where people have come in from all around the world, when you think about the multiple pagan religions that we talked about last, last time, being part of their ideological framework, when you think about all of these kinds of um, all of these kinds of bizarre sort of uh, worldviews they had, and then they come into the faith. They're bringing a lot of that with them. That's what you do. You bring a lot of stuff with you into the church, uh, like you do with marriage, right? I, I, I had, a, I did a class a couple of years ago. I said, okay, so what did you bring? A suitcase or a briefcase? Because you probably bring one of the two. David said he brought a duffel bag. Okay. Okay, that's why Gracie always said marriage is so hard. (laughs) Marriage is so so. Okay, there you go. So you know you gotta you gotta deal with folks that bring you know you looking at these suitcases go by and you're going wow that's a lot of suitcases. They get opened after a while. What this is dealing with is the dubious nature of Christians. So I'll give you some axioms here. These are very important. You can have the Christian that I call. Um, helpful but harmful at the same time and it's important to know that you can have the Christian that is both helpful and harmful now now, you know that's a problem but you have them you have them where they are uh, gifted but they are also needy and when a person is needy beyond remedy their neediness turns into antisocial behavior. Did that come home? It's really true. <clears throat> so all of us are in places of neediness, but there are some levels of neediness that can uh, disturb the giftedness that we have 
and it can interrupt fellowship with people because you can be so cleavy that you find yourself invading people's space and disrupting what is called the civility of the relationship. So there are people that are, that are like that, and that's, that is definitely what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with brethren who are used to <clears throat> identifying at the horizontal, horizontal level in a vulcanized fashion. And I use that because uh, in the first century, you can see it in the book of Acts, it probably came up a little bit in, uh, in the days of Christ as well. He, he hinted at it when he says, you teach for doctrine the traditions of men, and because of it, you make the commandments of God without effect. And that's because when men and women <clears throat> don't have a sincere and vital and growing relationship with God, it's really easy to collapse into identification with groups on the horizontal level. When a man or a woman doesn't have a, a vital growing relationship with God, they will actually be more willing to be named after under the authority and influence of horizontal group identity markers, okay? This is what we call denominations in, in our history of the church. Jesus never said start denominations. We did that. Please understand that. Paul is getting ready to argue that. That's what the next bulk of our study is about to be, out, be about right now. <clears throat> Jesus never said be Baptist. He never said be Pentecostal. He never said be Catholic. He never said be Greek Orthodox. He never said be Plymouth Brethren or Pentecostal or Congregational. He never said that. That's all the stuff we do. When we collapse under horizontal dilemmas and can only see ourselves as having significance when we are part of party groups. Right. Um, I can expand at length on that. This is not something that you and I should be um, overly concerned about. It does not mean in all of these uh, 330,000 denominational splits we have in the Christian church from its inception till now that there weren't true believers in them. The, the, the reality can be posited, however, that each group has major limitations on their capacity to comprehend the gospel fully, freely, and effectually. Some groups will be severely impeded based upon the origin and foundation of that little sectarian community that said me, myself, and I, us for and no more. That is what is called a sectarian mindset of uh, denominationalism, okay? They're very fine with their little uh, sectarian group. Uh, and, and, and what that will do is kind begets kind begets kind begets kind begets kind. All it will do is flourish other little groups. And that's why Christianity is as um, chaotically divided today as you can imagine. You guys got that? Right. And so here's what Paul is going to argue, because historically you can see this in the uh, school of Shema, the school of Gamaliel, the school of, um, uh, of the Libertines. You can see this in the... Um, the uh, the, um, <clears throat> the uh, Socratic, Platonic, Aristotelian, Philo groups uh, on, a, uh, on a more philosophical level in the Greek culture. Then again, you can find it with the Stoics. You can find it uh, with the Epicureans. You find these party spirits all over world history and church history because of the emergence of a very gifted person impacting people at whatever transformational level they are impacted by that person, and then they begin to yield allegiance at an inordinate level. Does that make some sense? The inordinate level is what Paul is about to talk about now. Notice what the text says in verse 13. Uh, Paul says in 113, is Christ what? Divided. That's exactly right. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, what Paul is about to do is actually create for us what I have shared with you guys before is the central organizing principle. The central organizing principle. 
He's about to teach us what the priority of, of vision is. The gospel of Christ to the Corinthians uh, organizing out of what? Chaos. Because chaos is occurring. I talked to you about that on, on uh, Friday, didn't I? That um, when, when God saves us, he's bringing us out of chaos. And he's recreating us a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ Jesus, he's a what? Well, what that means is there are new constitutions brought into your life that reshape your priorities so that your life begins to exhibit a kind of order and clarity and therefore a new identity. Right. And so when God comes into our life, that's what he brings about. He brings about a central organizing principle that's present that takes the chaos that we are in and organizes it. He actually is correcting their vision or the vision that he has. And the vision has to do with what we are called to be. He'll argue that through toward the end of the text. And that is the body of Christ. We are called to be the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is a complex unity, just like a physical body. And when the physical body does not operate in unity, unity and in harmony in its complexity, then that body is going to be schizophrenic. That body is going to be deficient. That body is going to show signs of um, discord, schism, you know, we could start using all kind of psychological and medical terms for the body that doesn't operate in harmony, unity, starting from the head on down. We could. We could say that body is sick, right? Um, especially when your leg want to go one way and your arm wants to go another way and your head yet another. And this is the analogy that, that Paul is beginning to draw. Notice he starts with Christ. He says, is Christ divided? See? Is Christ divided? Can you take Christ and separate him into uh, a million minute parts and still have the real Christ? The answer is no. And then he starts this kind of matriculation downward. Was Paul crucified for you? This is a play on, again, the Corinthians now using the party spirit to divide the nature of the presentation of the true and the living God in their life starting with Christ. Christ is the grounds of them even having an existence. Are you only owning Christ for a portion of your existence and then submitting to other more essential uh, authorities as the present identity marker that constitutes who you are? So he's, he's, Paul is using a rhetorical device, but it is not insignificant because notice what he says. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of what? I love this because what Paul is doing here, Paul is not directly talking to the other devotees who are utilizing other teachers' names. He's starting with the devotees who are using Paul as an inappropriate hierarchy of avatars and teachers in this sort of eclectic of teachers. He's starting by reproving those that he's saying to them, you should never exalt me to that degree. Okay, you, you, you know, you, I didn't die for your sins. And when you were baptized, you were not baptized in the name of Paul of, of Tarsus. And so that's very important because what he's about to deal with is who is Christ? What did his death do? And what is baptism? in relationship to our identity. Did that make some sense? Who is Christ? What did his death do? And what is baptism in relationship to your identity? Baptism is everything. Baptism is the marquee symbol of our unity in God through Christ. Baptism tells us everything about what we say we are in terms of our identity. And when we are not functioning that way, it becomes a problem. So this is what we want to work through briefly. So under point number two, this is what we want to see. Baptism is a sign of unity and authority of who? Right, so what Paul is doing is dealing with the schism, the party spirit, the contention, by reminding us of our unity and his authority over us, indicated by our what? Baptism. Unity and authority 
is indicated in baptism. When a man is baptized, a woman is baptized, they are baptized into Christ. They are saying to the world, my my very existence is due to my union with Jesus. Okay, so you are you are baptized into Jesus as an identity. You and Jesus become one. But it's more than that. When you are baptized into Jesus so that your unity is identified with Jesus, Jesus becomes your authority. This is why Matthew 28, 18 and 19 was, uh, 19 and 20 was given. Go ye into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Doing what? Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is to baptize them into the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. That's, that's what that means. Behold, all power and authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go ye. So you remember all through the book of Acts, particularly early on, they kept raising the question, with what authority are you doing this? Remember, they raised that question with Jesus in the temple all the time. Who gave you authority to do this? Jesus said, my daddy. My daddy, my father, which is in heaven. So you see how Jesus consistently walked in a hierarchy of central organizing principles. He never came out from up under his father's headship to own any kind of self-glory. You guys note that, right? This is what organizing principle is all about. It's a hierarchy of governmental structure that allows you to do what you do only on the basis of your union with that governmental structure. I am capable of doing what I'm doing because I am under the authority of Christ. And this is what Paul is challenging them on uh, in terms of them even daring to believe that it was okay for them to say, I am of. When you use that phrase, ego, I me, you are affirming the essence of your identity. Ego means you. It means the inner essence of your consciousness aware of you, Okay. I am. That's the term Christ was using all the time, right? I am the good shepherd, right? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of, of life, right? Those phrases, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of those phrases were indicating that he knew who he was under God. He never said, I am the father. He said, I and the father are one. But he wasn't saying I and the father are the same person. Okay, so it's very important to know he kept the organizing principle and therefore God highly exalted him and give, gave him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. When a person becomes a believer in Christ, Jesus is the chief organizing principle of your identity. Does that make some sense? So once you can own being a Christian, which a lot of Christians today are ashamed of. A lot of Christians today are ashamed of the name Jesus. This is growing and it's been growing massively in the African-American community for years. They don't mind Yeshua or Yahweh, but they have minimally expressed Jesus or Jesus. Do you understand that? They're very comfortable with talking about God in the generic. Very comfortable, comfortable with using the Aramaic expression, Yeshua, and it makes them feel pretty good as if somehow they're honoring Jesus. But it indicates a deficiency of what actually took place in the first century in Greek culture. So that's when we debate with them around the fact that they really don't believe the New Testament. Y'all got that? All right, so, so that's a whole other issue, but this is a marker. It'll help you recognize when people are unwilling to say Jesus is Lord, then it's indicating they have been corrupted and have been led astray by uh, other strands of uh, ideology and theology that are fundamentally legalistic in nature. When you start getting into black Hebrew Israelites and all these other systems, they're, uh, they're neo-Judaistic systems of works religion. They are not grounded in the full efficacy of what Christ did to accomplish our salvation on the grounds of grace. Once you start going down their rabbit holes, it's all about keeping the law. Did you understand what I just stated? Right, it's really an interesting thing and really the reason why Paul has to cut it off here 
is because he knows that there are really only two pathways to express yourself religiously. One is by a system of works religion, no matter how aesthetic or how uh, general it is, is a system of works. It's something you are doing to merit favor with God. The other one is a pathway of understanding that your works and mine only flow out of a free justification that came by the work of Christ alone. And, and so all you got to do is walk with a person for a little while and see whether or not they deviate from the path of grace. As soon as they don't do, then you can say with our native brethren, ah, oh, he speaks with forked tongue. You will know it too because it means the roots are not deep. Does that make some sense? And of course, Paul's going to deal with that because when we get to 2 Corinthians 11, he's going to make it plain that it was the Jews that entered in to persecute him and they, he, they turned a lot of people in Corinth against Paul. I say that and we must go on because I want you to comprehend now, baptism is a sign of unity and authority of Christ over our life. That's the whole discourse of 12 through 16. Listen to what he says. Uh, and uh, 14 through 16, now that we looked at 13. I thank God that I baptized none of you, one, but Crispus and Gaius. Do you see that? Now, Crispus, Gaius, Stephanus, uh, Silvanus, what do they all have in common? They're Greeks. Right, so knowing something of Greek grammar, I was at, uh, I was at the gym yesterday working out, and I have a, uh, I have a hoodie a black hoodie, and, and this is, I, I look straight like a hood when I'm wearing my outfit, but on the front, I'm saved, because on the front, I have doulas Jesu Christu, doula Jesu Christu, and people are always asking, what does that mean? There was one brother that was working out, sitting right next to me as I'm doing some dumbbell stuff, he's doing some stuff, and he looked over at me, he says, I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, he says, you speak Greek? I said, a bit. He says, man, that's amazing. And I said, what's your name? He gave me his name. I said, oh, you're Greek. Because Greeks have endings on their names that tell on them. O-S and U-S. Sylvanus, Aristarchus, uh, Apollos, Crispus, Gaius, Okay. So this is how you can know. So on my jacket, he understood the verb forms in the term doulos, Christu, um, Jesus Christu. And uh, then we began to have a conversation about church history. It was beautiful. Um, so there you go, an opportunity to witness. But I share that with you because once you learn a little bit of grammar, you can kind of see these things. Paul is using this because the church that God used him to start is largely a Greek church. So if you see what he's doing, he's tactfully bringing them back together, even though they are divided by these impulses of the flesh. Did that make some sense? Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse one. Look at verse one of our text. Notice how the text opens. First Corinthians chapter one, verse one. This is what I said. Mark this because Paul is being strategic from the opening. Paul called an apostle to be as in the italicis and not in the original, called an apostle of Yeshu Christu through dia, the will, thelos of theos, through the will of God, and who? Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes is a Greek. So, and then notice what he says, he's a brother. So what Paul is doing is saying, hey, my Greek brother with whom I am one, he's going to be the one bringing you the letter you Greek brethren, that we need to maintain our unity and not so easily divide, right? Paul is using a constant strategy of unity predicated upon him becoming all things to all men. So that's a beautiful thing. So we see under subpoint B, the priority of Christ being affirmed in verses uh, 15 through 17. Notice what it says in verse uh, 15. Lest any should say that I have baptized in my own name, and I baptize also the house of Stephanus. That's another Greek. Besides that, I know not whether I baptize anybody else. Maybe there's a few more. I mean, this is Paul. He's being honest. He says, I'm glad I'm not baptized. Well, I did baptize one or two or three or five or ten. 
And if I baptize more, I don't remember. I love that because what that is, is the humanity of Paul coming out. And the Holy Spirit allows it to be used to show us the freedom that he had to speak without always having to be so impeccably precise. Did that make some sense? Because you can have uh, unintelligent Christians who are exercising expectations about you that they themselves can't keep when they want you to be so fastidiously clear on everything you're talking about. Apostle Paul said, man, I don't, I, maybe a few more, but I wasn't running around just baptizing everybody. But I'll tell you how I baptized them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because that is the authority that Jesus gave us. Okay, so notice what it says in verse 17 because we're getting ready to get into another beautiful portion we may not finish today. He says over in verse uh, 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to do what? preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. That is worthy of a lengthy study. We're not going to do it because that's not what I want to do in the book of Corinth. I want to touch on some things and, and highlight them, but it's worthy of study. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, I want you to capture that really quickly because, again, these are constructions in the Greek thought as well as for Paul, a Hebrew where he is emphasizing what his primary duty is over against his secondary duty. His primary duty is to preach the gospel. His secondary duty is to do everything in concert with the preaching of the gospel, which would include baptizing them once they come to faith in Christ. Did that make some sense? Now, I say that because there are people who have taken this first clause and used it as a justification for not baptizing. This is called ignorant reasoning. Does that make some sense? This is called ignorant reasoning. And you can find many examples in the Bible like that where the Bible will affirm something positively and assert something negatively and will think that both of them are mutually exclusive, like you only do one but not the other. And I've told you, you got to watch out about that kind of trap. You got to know whether or not they are both and, and to be prioritized. We preach the gospel and we baptize. That's inherent in the mandate. That's clearly seen on the day of Pentecost. It's what they did all through the book of Acts, did they not? All right, so, you know, when, we, when I run across people that are unhinged like that in their thinking, I know they haven't been taught well, right? They lift up something because there's an intrinsic desire not to follow the normative traditional patterns. There's something also around baptism that is quite humbling. There's something around baptism that's quite humbling. I'm not going to stay here long, but I'm going to let you know. There are a lot of times people who are challenged with the blessing of anonymity in the proclamation of the gospel. Meaning when the gospel is preached, a person can privately and personally embrace Christ in the secrecy of their own heart. Does that make some sense? They can stay in the anonymity of secrecy around their love for Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is, when I sneak my way into your heart and I sit on the throne of it, my desire is for you to stand up and let the world know. Because when he came, he didn't do his work in a corner. He didn't do his work secretly and privately. He was public from the day his mama conceived him in the womb, and he was public the second he breathed his last breath on Calvary's tree, and he did it all for us. So this is called the maturan. The, uh, this is called being a witness. To be a martyr is to be someone that's ready to stand for Jesus. So when men and women are born again, they are commanded to be baptized. Does that make sense? You're commanded to be baptized. And baptism is a public confession of faith. Right? See, in my mind, unless the exigency, and that word exigency simply means the urgency of an event merits it, merits it, the idea that you want to cater to your sort of peculiarity of personhood, your, your present sort of... Uh, 
idiosyncrasy. We all have idiosyncratic ways, things about us that we are and we submit to. But when you become the Lord's, you can't just have God tell God that the only thing you're going to do is what you feel like doing. And that's being dominantly idiosyncratic. Does that make some sense? Like, so your dominant idiosyncratic ways might be that you're just as lazy as a sloth. And, and if that's the case, you know, Jesus didn't save you to be you. He didn't save you to be lazy. So now those idiosyncratic dominant characteristics have to be subordinated or modified, don't they? They have to be modified. You got to come to the water. And you got to have witnesses watching. Because the world needs to know that the gospel that has come into the world and granted light to the world penetrated your dark heart and gave you a revelation of the glory of God in the face of Christ at the level in which you were willing to do what Isaiah said. Let the blind come forth. Let the lame come forth. Let them plainly and publicly declare that the glory of the Lord is in this place. Let the lame leap for joy. So that's what you get in Acts chapter 4 at the gate beautiful. He was healed by Peter and John by the Holy Ghost. And that brother jumped up and ran all the way through the temple. Shouting and dancing and having a party for God saving him. Am I making some sense? God does that so the world can know grace impacted you. So that's what we're getting at here with Paul. I love this. And uh, also, when you and I are baptized, you and I are stained, stained by the efficacy of the blood of Christ, which actually grants you access to the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 19, 13. I'm just going to show it to you. The, uh, the, the Greek noun and verb, bapto. This is a verb, bapto. When you and I use the term baptism, we are what is called transliterating a Greek word. Baptizia, baptismos, baptizian, bapto. Bapto is our cognizant, our root word, bapto. The word bapto means to dip. To dip. It means to dip. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. That's another Greek word. It's called rantizo. Rantizo. That's sprinkling. Baptism is dipping. It's more radical. We're the kind of sinners that need more than just a sprinkling of the blood. But it's more than that. The idea of bapto means that you enter into union with Christ at the level of his blood so that being immersed in the water, symbolizing his blood, you are now stained with the blood, dipped in the blood. So when you come out, you are a blood-bought saint. And your identity now is the blood of the son of the living God. That stain never goes away. It's a stain that the father and the son and the Holy Ghost always sees. It's a stain that should penetrate the essence of who you are and begin the process of transforming you into the image of Christ. It's a stain for the world to see. Blood-stained sinners who have been redeemed by him who is the Lamb of God slain to take away our sin. Does that make sense? It's a radical thing. And here, when it says, and he was clothed with a vesture that was what? Dipped, that's our Greek term, in blood. And his name is called the word of the living God. And so when you dip something in the element and you bring it out, it's absorbed in that element. If you dip it in red, it's going to come out red. You dip it in green or blue or orange or purple or turquoise, it's going to come out that color. And the saints go in red and they come out white as snow. Does that make some sense? Right, in the person of Christ. And so this is why Paul is making a big huckamaboo about it. So let's see if we got, can deal with just a little bit more before we close. Um, point number three, this is what I love about what the apostle says. He says over in verse 17 through 24, he's getting ready to get into the gospel. And I'm just going to give you some technicalities of it. I think I'll be able to get it done. He says in verse 18, for the, uh, so when he says, I'm sorry, when he says, for Christ sent me uh, not to baptize primarily, but to preach the gospel, 
not with wisdom of words, lest the cross should be made of non-effect. Now he's getting ready to make a dichotomy between what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. There's going to be a dichotomy that goes deep. I don't think I have time to really work it through, so I'm going to do injustice. I may come back on it Friday, but it's important to get. Because what Paul is now about to deal with is the truth of ministers of the gospel versus the facsimile of the false ministers of the anti-gospel that had entered into his community. The truth of the ministry of faithful gospel preachers versus the facsimile of the false ministers of the gospel that had infiltrated Corinth. Because there were false ministers. We saw this in 2 Corinthians 11, right? Satan came as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. So when you meet somebody that's false, they have a false gospel. So this is why Paul is saying, I did not come with the kind of wisdom that you heard from all of these other communicators. This is called sophistry in, 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 Greek, in Greek language as well as Latin language. The sophist. I want you to hear how this goes out tie it down not with the wisdom of what words right so he says i'm not coming because i have been uh, granted the schooling and education of how to use words frame words manipulate words impose words words are powerful your enemy is using them all the time right now they're all powerful very much so and you and I have been born and raised using words. And we've learned how powerful words are. Because in our own families, we have had to deal with the pecking order of authority. And how we have either been dominated or ourselves learned how to manipulate and dominate others with our words. Words are conveyors of ideas. They are uh, conveyors of philosophy. They are conveyors of motivations. They are conveyors of intents. They are conveyors of emotions. So if you organize your words right, you can attack mankind at the totality of his anatomy. You can get him in his mind. You can get him in his emotions. You can get him at his volition. You can get him in so many ways with words. I'm making some sense, am I not? Right, again, these are the tools of politics. And again, like I stated, Corinth had plenty of them. All you got to do is go to Acts 17. This is where Paul dealt with Mars Hill. And all of the gods they were worshiping. And, and, and the Corinthians, like many people, are frequently vulnerable to the spellbinding gift of rhetoric. To be or not to be. That is the question. And then, you know, we can just go on with many examples of how that methodology has the ability to actually lower your consciousness and penetrate into your psyche and alter the way you perceive things. Paul says, I didn't use that methodology. In fact, he says, I didn't even consider it. Though Paul was an educated man. So we're making a juxtaposition between the gospel and human wisdom. This is what he's doing, okay? He, mere human wisdom at the level of rhetoric. This is what he meant, the wisdom of words. Somebody's just going to walk through and we're going to close. I'll talk it through as we go. He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. So he's arguing that the auditors of someone that is preoccupied with a methodology of communication that is far more inclined to an aesthetic influence. How you hear it, an aesthetic influence. If the auditors are trapped by, and if they have as a kind of allegiance to and tradition for the aesthetic of words, then they are really not open to the clarity that comes with proposition. Because proposition is the express meaning of the things declared. No, no, no. I don't want to hear what you're saying. I want to hear how you're saying it. Stroke my aesthetic need. Scratch my itching ear with your syntactical skill set. 
right, with your rhetorical gymnastics, with your uh, emotional inflections. Are you hearing me? Of course, of course. Now, in saying what I'm saying, it's not that we don't use some of those same tools. Of course we do. One person here, another person there starts at childhood. I'm glad I got a class of students. I'm glad you don't have the heebie-jeebies. I'm glad you are able to keep yourself out of Kafka traps. I'm glad you are able to make sure you avoid contradictions because we're not saying that the intonations and expressions and, and syntactical elements of communicating aren't helpful. We're not saying that. You don't want somebody coming in here speaking in such crazy incoherent jargon that you can't even hear the gospel because their language and their speech and their syntax is so discombobulated that you're struggling to even get one sentence, you know, clear out of what they said. You don't want that. So that's another extreme. Am I making some sense? You got, I, ain't got, I, I got two minutes. My country, my country brother. And this is where once you go too far in the, far in the other extreme, now we're moving into mysticism because in the hyper intellectual rhetorical sort of lofty device realm of, of babble, babbling as well, because that's babble. It may sound good. It might reach the aristocrats. It might, it might, you know, tickle the ears of the elite. But go back to the other end where now we're speaking in tongues without an interpretation because our, our genre is so, so, so corrupted by a lack of legitimate grammatical structure. And they're telling you, you, the only reason you can't hear me is because you ain't got the Holy Ghost. You ain't got the Holy Ghost. If you had the Holy Ghost, then you get it. Right, that's another extreme. Did you hear what I just stated? It's another extreme. I remember perusing through the churches in the South and, you know, oh God, that's not good. That's not good. Whatever we do that destroys the clarity of the proposition impedes the possibility of people's minds being opened up to the facts. Does that make some sense? Right. If this whole thing becomes part of, in, in theology we call this homiletics, and, and that's a whole class and discipline itself, homiletics. And so you got all your schools with different homiletical styles, okay? Again, in the black church, they don't feel like you're preaching until you're hooping. Now, have you ever heard the hoop? I go say, now you need to stop, bruh, bruh, you need to stop, bruh, stop, okay? Because ain't nothing going on at the hoop but emotions. Am I making some sense? Nothing going on at the hoop but emotions. Now you're pulling on our emotional uh, coattails the same way the rhetorists in the first century are. Now you, uh-oh, now, you know when that organ gets to playing and they get to hooping, now we know we got to, got to come out of our pocket because the, the offering getting ready to come. Is coming down a lot. This is called traditions, the traditions of men in that regard. It makes the gospel of non-effect. So this is what I'm going to say. We'll come back later on it because my time is up. Under point number three, there are three categories, and I think I'll unpack them on Friday if you don't mind. Notice what it said. The preaching is instrumental. Do you see that? Subpoint A. The message is essential. Subpoint B. And the presence of his effectual power is what Paul is talking about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And this has to do with the Spirit endorsing the effort of the kerygma and the content of the euangelion. So when we talk about preaching, we're talking about an act. Did that come home? That's called the kerygma. It's an act. When we talk about the gospel proper, that is the term euangelion. We're talking about the content, the content. When we're talking about the effectual impact of that content, we're talking about the third person. We're talking about the paraclete taking the euangelion through the charisma and impacting hearts. Did that make some sense? I, I know you got it because you're students. Other people going to fall over. There you go again. But, but it's important to know that you can get someone who can exercise a form of kerygma. What is kerygma? Preaching. 
And his content is totally political, totally social, totally mystical, maybe some other religion. So he is exercising the charisma. He's proclaiming with authority what he believes, and he has a way about it, and it makes sense, and it's orderly, and it's clear to you and I, and we'll go, ha, ah, that was a good presentation style-wise. The content can be absolutely vacuous of uh, biblical truth. In many of our churches, people will get up and go and say, that was a good message. And they would be misidentifying what it was that was good. What was good was the charisma, not the euangelion. The euangelion was absent. The euangelion is the preaching of the person and work of Christ across the charisma. So that what you capture in the preaching is the revelation of either his person or his work or both. Does that make sense? And even then, what the Apostle Paul would say, we'll talk about it on Friday, is that the charisma or the euangelion itself does not save. Did you hear what I just stated? The, the preaching or the euangelion itself does not save. Something has to actually be embedded in the message as well as the communicator for that to occur and then there has to be a negotiation between God and the auditors for them to get the benefit. So we'll take that up on Friday and work that through, okay?